Healthcare Today is produced and paid for by the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to WDEV at RadioVermont.com. Healthcare Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, a weekly exploration of health and wellness topics affecting Vermonters. Brought to you in part by Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Age Well Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. Northfieldpharmacy.com. And Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee-owned and locally committed. Your participation is encouraged. Call with your questions, 244-1777 or 877-291-8255. Good afternoon. I'm Dr. Lewis Myers, and this is Healthcare Today. A question that I hear frequently is, why do medicines cost so much? We're going to try and answer that question today with our two guests, Dr. James Robinson and Dr. Philip Shine. As you know, if you're here in Vermont, it is bitterly cold today. Uh, I think it's fair to say both of our guests are in warmer climates right now. Dr. James Robinson is on the phone with us from the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, Dr. Robinson has an MPH, that's a master's in public health, and a PhD in economics. He is a professor of health economics and director of the Berkeley Unit for Health Technology and division head of the Health Policy and Management at the University of California School of Public Health. He has published three books and over 130 papers in scientific and policy journals. For those uh, listeners uh, who listen uh, regularly to this program, you may remember Dr. Philip Shine. This is his third appearance on this show. Um, he is on the phone with us from Stewart, Florida. Uh, the reason I keep inviting him back is he seems to be the Swiss Army knife uh, in, in the sense that he has been involved in so many areas of health care uh, that he can answer questions uh, or has thoughts on, on a number of different issues. Uh, Dr. Shine uh, began his... Uh, Career, professional career as a physician researcher at the NIH in the 1960s. He went on to be a clinical oncologist and then the director of Georgetown University's Lombardi Cancer Center in Washington, D.C. He then went on to the large international pharmaceutical company SmithKline, where he was the vice president for research and development, and ultimately went on to start his own pharmaceutical company, which brought several medications to market. Um, in addition, he is a very uh, skilled photographer. I want to welcome both of you, Dr. Robinson and Dr. Shine. Hello. Thank you for having us. Great to be here. Um, Dr. Robinson, let, let me start with you. Um, you look at the economics of, uh, of uh, medications and, and pharmaceuticals as part of your uh, uh, portfolio there in California. And, um, let's start with... We're going to start with talking about one medication and then sort of broaden the discussion because this medication has been very controversial, and that's Aduhelm. That's spelled A-D-U-H-E-L-M. This is a medication that uh, the FDA recently gave uh, at least provisional approval for. It is designed to treat uh, Alzheimer's disease or or, uh, early Alzheimer's disease, Uh, but it's been very controversial. And 
perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the history of this medication and, and the process it went through to get approved and, and what the controversy is. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, well, first and most obviously, um, Alzheimer's disease is a major, actually, pandemic in the United States. About 6 million Americans have some form of uh, uh, Alzheimer's. And it's been a disease, a very serious disease, um, that has been very resistant to treatment. It's the, the uh, uh, pharmaceutical industry has um, invested a lot of money over the years, decades of drugs that turned out not to work. And so there's a, uh, what I would call a desperation on the part of patients, but also on the part of pharma industry to find something that works. And so uh, when the Adderhelm uh, drug, which was uh, uh, is marketed by Biogen, a, a major uh, Massachusetts-based company, um, had some promising early evidence of efficacy, uh, everybody jumped on it. And the problem is, is that uh, Aduhelm uh, is very effective of, in reducing plaque uh, in the brain, uh, but plaque in the brain is not necessarily the cause of Alzheimer's disease. It might be, but that's an unproven link. And so the FDA approved uh, this drug for marketing based on this effect on uh, bio, the biomarker on the beta amyloid plaque. Uh, whereas the effect on um, patient well-being and cognitive ability was the evidence there was, uh, depending on how you want to state this, from weak to zero um, and very controversial because of that. So, And then the company, Biogen, uh, announced a significant price of $56,000 per patient per year, and this is a drug that you would take forever until you die if you start taking it. So uh, the impact, and given the prevalence of uh, Alzheimer's in the country, this would have uh, essentially crippled Medicare program. In fact, uh, Medicare has, of, uh, if I, if Medicare has recently, part of the big increase in their premiums was based around anticipating having to pay for this. Is that right? That's right. That's right. And 80% of Alzheimer's patients are over 65 and therefore eligible for Medicare. So we're basically talking about a Medicare financed drug. Um, and so that got, that became very controversial. So it's partly the, the, the weak evidence on efficacy and then it's partly the, the possible major financial implication, although, as you were saying, we can talk about this, the financial implication looks like it's not going to happen because the drug is not being used almost at all, and we can talk about that, but let me pause. We, we should also there. add that uh, there are major potential side effects with this medication, up to 40% is, is my understanding of people who take it uh, can have some adverse consequences, some of them quite serious, and it requires yearly MRI scans of the brain, et cetera, et cetera, which all add to the cost. So so the process by which the F walk us through a little bit about how the FDA handled this because it was a very unique situation. Okay, well, the FDA um, is frequently uh, faced with the following situation. Um, the a drug is developed for a condition um, a, a long-term condition, a chronic condition like Alzheimer's, like cancer, and uh, to do to prove efficacy, you would have to enroll patients in a trial that would go on for years. 
and lots of patients. That would be very expensive, and it would also delay uh, patient access. So what they do is that they use um, what they call biomarker or surrogate endpoints. What that means is instead of uh, looking at does the patient get better, does this extend life, does this reduce disease, they look at does this change um, things we can measure in the body, which could be something like a cholesterol level uh, or a tumor size in a cancer patient, or in this case, uh, the presence of this beta amyloid plaque in the brain. And... um, the usual scenario is, okay, you, you do studies looking at these biomarkers, which you can study in a, you know, a short period of time, and then you, have, you can approve it provisionally based on that. Then you require the company to do a long-term, uh, what we call clinical study, in patients looking at the health outcome we really care about, which for Alzheimer's, the main endpoint is cognitive decline. And really what you want with these drugs is to slow the rate of cognitive decline. That's, what, that's the goal. And I think that's what in patients this, want, right? They don't, most patients aren't going to care about their biomarkers. What they care about is are they doing better in terms of their Alzheimer's? Are they preventing progression of the disease? Absolutely. These are patient, what we call patient relevant endpoints. Patients couldn't care less about biomarkers. They don't even understand biomarkers. And, um, but biomarkers are, can be useful from a scientific perspective if and only if they are good predictors of those endpoints that patients do care about. I'm remiss. I should have given our phone number because we certainly always like to hear from callers. If you have any thoughts about medications and the cost of medications, we're at 802-244-1777. Again, that's 802-244-1777. So uh, there was another... uh, in terms of getting this through the passage, through the stages of the FDA, there was a lot of push from the Alzheimer's Association, which is a <clears throat> has a lot of members uh, because there are a lot of people with Alzheimer's and a lot of families involved. It has a lot of money. Um, to what degree was the Alzheimer's Association and its support of this medication an important factor? Oh, I don't, you know, you can't, you can never point to a particular organization, but the, uh, there's no question that the patient advocacy groups for Alzheimer's have a very strong political influence because, as you say, they are very large and everybody cares about Alzheimer's. Everybody's, everybody knows somebody whose parents have Alzheimer's, et cetera. These patient advocacy groups are heavily funded by the pharmaceutical industry. You got to keep that in mind. These groups essentially in their policy stuff, work for the pharma companies. And so that doesn't mean that they're wrong. It just means you've got to keep that in mind. That's a significant um, conflict of interest that there. was certainly at play here. The, the groups were definitely lobbying. They were lobbying hard for the FDA to do something that the FDA has never done before. Okay, you've got to remember, this is really, this is really uh, a radical change in FDA policy. Because let me go, let's go back to where we were. The usual FDA thing is to say, okay, first the company does a biomarker study, and if that's positive, then we'll do provisional approval, condition, uh, accelerated approval, and you have to do a follow-on trial to look at patient-relevant endpoints. That's the usual. In this case, the company had done clinical trials of patient-relevant endpoints, and the drug had flopped. Okay? It was not, it did not flow cognitive decline. And but it did clear up. It did reduce this plaque, this biomarker. So 
the, the, the FDA against the un, unanimous vote of its advisory committee, scientific advisory committee, said don't approve this drug. The FDA did approve the drug under heavy, heavy lobbying uh, and then said, okay, now the company's supposed to do some more trials, but they have another nine years to do these trials. Meanwhile, they're going to be charging $56,000 per patient, making a killing, billions, and I mean billions with a B, uh, off of this drug, which, as far as we know, it, I mean, it, has, it might work, but there's no evidence that it works. Let's just put it that way. It might work, but there's no evidence. So subsequently, what has and, happened is the company quickly, in, in the face of this blowback, uh, with the uh, have cut by 50% the price of the medicine, still extraordinarily expensive at $28,000 per year per patient. And even that, as you mentioned, not many uh, uh, physicians are prescribing it. But now the FDA has uh, made one final, uh, an additional ruling. And what is that? Well, the, the next thing was the FDA is still sticking with the drug. Uh, but what's next is what is Medicare or CMS? I'm sorry, yeah, Medicare, Medicare made a. Uh, what are they going to do? Are they going to pay for this thing? And uh, because 80 percent of the patients would be Medicare eligible, um, and the answer is they they are basically bound by law that if the FDA approves something, they've got to pay for it, and they've got to pay whatever the company charges, which is really amazing when you think about it. Um, they they can't negotiate. Um, and so they were going to have to pay $56,000. Now the company, because it got such bad publicity, reduced it to 28000 which is still, you know, 10 times higher than what even the, uh, the sort of the, you know, the, the, I mean, there's people who say it doesn't work at all. People who say it might work say a reasonable price would be in that range of $2,000, two to $5,000, and they're still 10 times higher than that. Uh, but anyway, CMS said, Okay, we'll cover it because we have to cover it, but we'll only cover it for patients that are enrolled in randomized clinical trials that generate continuing evidence on does this thing work in, uh, you know, meaningful, clinically meaningful endpoints. And so that's, and that's going to um, really shrink uh, the number of patients who are going to get it because these clinical trials are going to be only in major academic medical centers, which some people believe is a good thing that this drug shouldn't be out there being prescribed by your uh, friendly neurologist down the street. It should be in a major medical center with all kinds of safeguards. This is a dangerous drug, does have side effects, is really expensive. So this is uh, the first so time Medicare has, has taken this step, I believe. Do you think this is opening the door to Medicare taking a more active role in terms of what they will pay for and under what conditions? Well, Medicare is very constrained in what in anything it can do in, 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 uh, to put a limit on what it pays by law, um, and because when the Medicare monitor is well, anyway, by law, and so what if you really want Medicare to be an intelligent purchaser of drugs, you need to change the law. And as you know, there's been a lot of efforts to uh, change uh, drug uh, uh, legislation vis-a-vis -vis Medicare, and then more generally in Congress over the past few years, uh, led by President Trump and now by President Biden. Uh, and But uh, that has gone essentially nowhere because of the blizzard of uh, lobbying by the industry um, and the patient advocacy organizations supported by the industry. Um, and so, but Medicare has this one little 
it does have the right to do what it did in in this Alzheimer's case, which is to say, yeah, we'll pay for it, but only under very restrictive conditions. And so uh, that had immediate the – the stock prices, not only of Biogen, but the other pharma companies that are in neurology crashed after that because instead of having, you know, hundreds of thousands or even millions of patients taking these drugs, almost no patients are going to be taking these drugs. It's going to be basically a research project for the next several years. And so uh, this is – uh, either good news or bad news, depending on your where you sit. Um, but it is very bad news if you sit at Biogen. Let's just put it that way. Now, I know that you have uh, <clears throat> studied other countries and their systems. How how do other developed countries, for example, in Europe and, and elsewhere, how are they different than the United States in terms of how they price medications? Okay. Um, yes, I do spend a fair amount of time in, particularly in Europe. I would say, first of all, just on Aduhelm, they just, the, you know, the, the equivalent of the FDA in Europe is called the EMA, European Medicines uh, Agency, and they just flat out denied coverage for it, denied authorization. So there is no sales in Europe, period, end of discussion. When it comes to other drugs that are approved, uh, yes, you are absolutely right. The uh, other, um, uh, countries. They have some of them are single payer countries uh, financed with a government entity like England uh, or Italy, and others are multi payer private insurers like Germany or Switzerland. Um, either way, they uh, negotiate prices with the pharmaceutical companies and they pay prices that are on average uh, about, uh, you know, maybe 30 to 40 percent of the prices paid in the United States. So they're not zero. But they get uh, much lower prices that the same drug company, including American drug companies, are willing to sell the same drug, much lower price to countries like Germany and Switzerland, which are not poor countries, by the way. I mean, it's one thing to say, well, we should have low prices in Africa. Everybody kind of agrees on that. But low prices in Germany, and I love Germany, by the way. I love Germans. It's all good. I love France. It's all good. But why should they be paying less than half of what we pay for these drugs? I'm not sure I understand the logic of that. Um, but that is the truth of what happens, and that's often held out as an example. Uh, for example, uh, our junior senator from Vermont, Senator Sanders, uh, has has quoted that uh, frequently in terms of his his uh, desire to see more government intervention in terms of pricing. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, it's it's a um, uh, uh, there is. I mean, I I, uh, I challenge anyone, anyone everywhere, regardless of their politics, to come up with a justification why the U.S. should be paying twice as much as Germany for drugs. I mean, it's just impossible. The industry says, well, Germany should pay more. Okay, well, fair enough. Uh, and then the payers. And the, by the way, the Germans are like, no, they're not going to do that. They're not going to like, oh, America pays twice as much, so let's let's double what we pay. They're like, mm, forget it. Um, so should America pay less? Um, there are those that say America should pay less. Now, My the counterargument, if I may, the counterargument, and we're going to bring this up with Dr. Shine uh, after the break, the counterargument that the pharmaceutical companies will make uh, is that when they're when they're constrained as to how much they can charge – that they are unable to get a uh, 
a good return on the considerable investment they've made over many years, often billions of dollars to bring a new drug to market, and that that will mean that there will be less new medications coming uh, online uh, or through the pipeline. What are your thoughts on that? Um, well, there's uh, two ways, a ba- there's many ways, but there's basically two ways to finance innovation in pharmaceuticals. Uh, one is, as we've been talking about, uh, prices charged on the uh, and profits earned off of the current generation of drugs. Uh, about 17% of, of uh, profits uh, earned by pharma companies are reinvested in R&D, and that's a meaningful amount of money. That's a, that's a big deal. Um, but the other way is by uh, uh, government. Uh, this is, of course, the National Institutes of Health finances most um, basic science and R&D, and, and, and then also the governments, uh, some governments finance also product development. Other countries uh, are, are all in the business of supporting their, their domestic pharma industries, particularly China, but also in Europe, because they want to sustain um, uh, high-tech industries and jobs in their own countries. America has been happy to export its companies, and that's why we're deindustrialized. That's why we don't have employment. Um, but we did do it with COVID. And if you paid attention to the COVID um, innovation process, which was very successful, it was financed almost 100% by the U.S. taxpayer, not by prices, not by profits, by the taxpayer. Thank you very much. Through BARDA, Operation Warp Speed, and your and my taxes. And so I think that the the notion that, that if we don't have high prices, we don't have innovation has been disproven by the COVID experience. And it's being disproven by, let's say, China, which ha- pays the lowest prices in the world, in the world, uh, for American drugs. Uh, and But, of course, wants to charge the highest prices in the world for its drugs in America. And so it's kind of like, wow, this does not make sense. No, we're losing on both, on both, uh, on both ways. Let me, we just have a few minutes before the break and I wanted to, I know this is not, uh, insulin is not your area of uh, study or, or expertise, but one, but insulin is a medication which is already used by millions of Americans. Uh, just to remind listeners if they don't no, it was uh, came on uh, market uh, almost a hundred years ago, 1923. Doctors Banting and Best and colleagues in University of Toronto in Canada discovered insulin, and they felt it was a crude uh, formulation at that point. But they felt, but it worked, and they felt that they did not uh, want to make a profit in terms of uh, a medication that was going to help humanity. So they actually sold the patent to the University of Toronto for one dollar. And over the years, um, insulin has – so insulin's a 100 years old. There have been several companies, particularly Eli Lilly, who have been instrumental in, in continuing to improve formulations of insulin. But it has been around for 100 years. And what people don't – what people question now is why the price of insulin is skyrocketing in recent years, something that has been around for nearly 100 years. What are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, the, the – um the reason why drug companies can charge high prices for certain drugs um, is because is in those situations where there's no competition, um, and uh, 
in we have the uh, social policy to um, uh, allow drug companies to charge high prices for a period of time. That's called patents. And a patent gives the uh, the patent holder the right to um, uh, sell their drug without competition for 20 years. Obviously, uh, insulin is way past that, as are many other drugs, um, and that don't face competition because the companies are very creative in in filing different kinds of secondary, what we call secondary patents, uh, which may be linked to the mode of administration of the drug. Like, I mean, there's like with insulin, there's short acting, long acting. There's different kinds of injection uh, technologies, um, different sorts of things like that, which create, which create new monopolies. And then, uh, so that is the essence is what these patent extension policies, which we also see for drugs like Humira and Embril, which have, which are all off patent. They should be facing generic biosimilar competition, but they're not because of this patent. It's really abuse, patent extension abuse. We have a, we have the most innovative patent lawyer industry in the world. Okay. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, you know, Enbrel and, and, and Humira face biosimilars. They've gotten discounts of up to 90% in Europe, and we still have zero competition. Every year the price goes up. Okay, it goes up and it goes down in Europe. It goes up in America. Thank you very much, America. Um, but that's what's been going on in uh, the insulin space. And But there's also the complication in the insulin area of the perverse incentives by the, the payers, by which I mean insurance companies and pharmacy benefit managers who have their own, and this is, gets really wonky and I won't get into it, but their own perverse incentives to, um, to favor high-priced drugs that are willing to give them uh, a big rebate, basically kickback. In, in the last minute the, before uh, break, would you please explain just very briefly what are pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs? PBMs are basically health insurance companies for drugs, and many of them are owned by insurance companies. So your typical, uh, so you, if you have United Healthcare as your insurance company, you probably have Optum RX as your PBM. Trust me, they're owned by the same company. The stock market treats them the same. Um, but uh, it's basically, they they get a kickback, and but you, if you're the patient, you pay the full price. Not you pay your share of the full price, let's say twenty percent. Not and you don't benefit from any of this rebate kickback stuff. It is an outrage. It's a total. Well, it is a outrage. complicated outrage, and uh, I, I I like hearing your passion uh, for this. We're going to stay on the line. We're going to be back and right after the break. We're at eight zero two two four four one seven seven seven. Dr. Lewis Myers back with the second half of healthcare today. We're talking about medications today, but specifically why they cost so much. And Dr. Robinson, if you'll stay on the line, uh, I want to bring in Dr. Philip Shine, who I introduced earlier. Um, Dr. Shine, after a long history of, uh, after a long uh, career in clinical medicine, uh, then went on to Smith Klein as a vice president there in, in charge of their research and ultimately started his own company and brought several medications to market. So, Dr. Shine, I wondered if you could walk us through, take one of the medications, for example, that you were responsible either at SmithKline or in your own company, uh, and walk us through the process, uh, sort of from beginning to end. How does a new medicine come into being, and, and how in the company did was it priced? Um, Doctor, yeah, job in, uh, in 
presenting the situation as we currently see it in regard to this Alzheimer's drug and, and uh, the pricing of drugs in general. Uh, but what we have to recognize is that the drug discovery development process uh, can be characterized as a very high-risk, long-term, and very expensive undertaking. Um, the risks are enormous. You start with perhaps a 1,000 uh, conceptually uh, potential drug candidates that get screened, perhaps get entered into the, the system to see if they can survive uh, the very rigorous process of development and review. <clears throat> uh, and you're fortunate if you end up with perhaps 10 uh, that will enter into clinical development. So there's a tremendous amount of attrition and uh, failed drugs along that route, uh, but the expense is still there. The time frames for taking a drug from, let's say, inception from discovery to uh, an NDA, a new drug uh, approval uh, by the FDA, estimated to be 10, 12 years. So you have to have a lot of staying power. A uh, small company has great difficulty doing that, uh, staying with the process long enough to actually see whether or not <clears throat> a drug candidate could actually make it. And the costs are enormous. Now, they've been variously estimated of what, how much it costs to develop a new chemical or a new mo molecule uh, from the beginnings to the point where it's, uh, it's approved by the FDA. Um, and the figures vary um, uh, and uh, vary from time to time in terms of in relationship to FDA policy or perhaps the nature of the chemical. But there are a couple of uh, organizations that study this very carefully and have provided us some objective numbers rather than those coming directly from the pharmaceutical industry. For example, the Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development. So the estimate there is somewhere between $1.5 to perhaps $2.5 billion uh, of investment for every drug approved. And, of course, there are a lot of uh, dry holes that have been dug in a, a considerable amount of additional expense. So if you look at the, uh, the budgets of, uh, of the pharmaceutical companies in terms of their investments in drug development and discovery, um, you'll see it's in the billions, and um, they're dependent upon having a couple of successes during the course of those years and then being able to get some return on their investment. Uh, and obviously, to stay in business, they have to, as Dr. Robertson suggests, uh, put a substantial amount of their profits back into the uh, system in order to continue uh, the flow through their pipeline and sustaining them you know, for future survival. Dr. Robinson uh, mentioned the, the considerable investment of taxpayer dollars in basic research. When you were at SmithKline, for example, or in your own company, to what extent were you able to use that basic research and then sort of leapfrog it into the specific drug development? It, it varied um, from discovery to discovery. I think the National Cancer Institute historically, uh, as a prime example, was at one period of time the principal developer of anti-cancer drugs in the world. It was largely because the pharmaceutical industry had no interest in this franchise, uh, felt it was too fragmented, uh, not much profit to be made. Uh, so the Cancer Institute stepped in, did a lot of the fundamental drug discovery and initial development and then license the products out to the pharmaceutical industry. And one company in particular benefited enormously from that relationship. That was Bristol-Myers. And at one point, uh, Congress in particular took an interest in this subject, and when the drug Taxol 
reached the market and perhaps was had market sales of about a billion dollars. Um, Congress recognized that the origins of that drug came from a program that was supported by the government, by the NIH, Cancer Institute specifically, and why wasn't the American public getting a uh, greater return for the initial investments they made in bringing that forward? So it's been a very controversial subject. And when there have been attempts uh, to say, the government saying that we will, because we're licensing you our discoveries, want a say in what pricing you provide to the market, uh, the pharmaceutical companies have basically responded saying, we will forego the opportunity of working with you. We'll simply depend upon our own uh, internal R&D efforts as well as our relationships we developed in other academic communities. Well, let me so let me ask you this. Um, yeah. uh, Dr. Robinson talked about the government uh, involvement in, in, in uh, bringing the COVID vaccines quickly to 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 market uh, as an as an example of what the government can do when it sets its mind to it. I mean, you've worked for NCI, I think, early in your career, and then obviously in the in the private market afterwards. What are your thoughts? Do you think that if we relied more on the federal government and its you know huge and our huge tax investment in, in research to bring more medicines to market from start to finish, would that stifle innovation, or how would that? What effect would that have? It would really depend upon uh, whether the companies at the end of the day, looking out for their own self-interest and, well, the interests of their shareholders, whether they feel that they're being prohibited from getting what they regard as a reasonable return on whatever investments they're making. In this instance, uh, what the government did, as I understood it, is sort of prepay in advance. The companies have the technology, the ability to make these messenger RNA uh, vaccines, and the government prepaid uh, pre-ordered, in essence, a certain number of these, uh, providing the companies in advance the, the capital uh, as well as the incentive to uh, produce, to manufacture large numbers that the government could then uh, distribute. Um, it, it was sort of a one-off situation. Um, it perhaps serves as a model uh, going forward as to how uh, the government and the industry can work together to the, to the good of uh, the American public. Uh, but this was sort of a crisis situation where um, these types of uh, new models perhaps were required in order to respond to the, to the threat. There are two other uh, things that work here. One is that there is a lot of Me Too generation of medications. In other words, it's it's almost like sequels in, in TV programs or movies. If, if something worked before, let's do a sequel. Uh, and the same is true with medications. There are a lot – rather than go off into a new direction, a lot of times it seems like private companies – would prefer to do a Me Too type medication that's just different enough so that they can get a patent, but will be expected to work. Um, and we, so we see less new development in that regard. The other thing is that companies, as you say, are beholden to their shareholders. Certain, uh, certain medications, for example, which treat acute infections are in short supply now, new medications, because the companies recognize that uh, these may uh, only be used for a week or two at a time, and rather than say an Alzheimer's medication that's used for years, uh, so they have less in- investment in-, in coming up with a medication like that that's going to be used for such a short period of time. Is there a role for the federal government now to step in in these underserved areas and sort of take over? I think the government certainly can encourage it. Now, in Europe, as you've discussed, a little different situation. Um, 
it, it, what one is looking for includes the public, the prescribing community, physicians, or better drugs. So something with added benefit relative to what is available on the market at any given time, uh, the comparators. Um, and the pricing ought to be somehow uh, linked to the value. Now, those values are difficult to calculate. Uh, is it a further palliation of some symptoms? Is it an extension of life? Is a cure where perhaps cure was not available before? And how do you price uh, that degree of innovation, that degree of added benefit? If you have a strict Me Too drug uh, that is on the market simply because there is a patent, then I don't think the pricing you know, the pricing should not be ever higher than what the comparable is already on the market. And what you've heard in regard to this Alzheimer drug, which is very, very assuring, is that there is a market force that uh, is uh, really not thought of or accounted for. Physicians are not interested in drugs with limited efficacy or potentially serious side effects. If they have alternatives or perhaps even no alternatives, it will choose to go elsewhere. Uh, so you cannot force a drug on the prescribing community if it doesn't have the attributes that they're looking for. Well, here's that, here's a question. I'm part. sorry. Here's a question, that, and I think it's important, and uh, I, I kind of know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. To what extent do phys- physicians know what these medications cost, whether they're in primary care or even a, an oncologist? When they prescribe a medicine, how, do they know what how much a patient's going to have to pay out of pocket, for example? I think increasingly physicians are being made aware of what the costs are and they're being challenged uh, when certain uh, prescriptions are written, you know, is it really indicated. Now, again, there are models in other countries. For example, in Germany, they have a system whereby physicians were given a set budget for all their patients, for all their prescribing uh, for the course of the year. And they had to work within that budget and therefore the physicians were forced to make decisions as to what drugs would be described for individual patients based upon the conditions that they were managing. Um, so that forces some discipline, uh, some recognition that you just can't write a prescription willy-nilly without taking at least the cost factor into consideration. At the same time, cost should not be the principal variable. If there is a more effective treatment available for the patient, then the physician ought to act as that patient's advocate in ensuring that the better medicine is made available for that case. Well, I know from my own experience in primary care that uh, all too often we don't ask the patient, can you afford this medicine? Um, a lot of patients actually are not willing really to tell their primary care provider, their physician, that, gee, uh, you know, I know you're prescribing it, but I'm not taking it because I can't afford it. I have to pay for heat this month rather than buy my medicine. So I think a lot of uh, primary care Physicians, for example, don't even ask, but it's an important question. It's a very important question. Yeah. Um, let me ask yeah, about yeah, some of the practical one now. Yeah. You know, Go for ahead. Many cancer treatments, the costs are becoming prohibitive, just yeah. not sustainable. Uh, but even you know, a cost for an Alzheimer drug with very limited efficacy, approved based upon a surrogate and not true clinical benefit of fifty-six thousand um, dollars. That's you know that just defies logic. Uh, that was a serious mistake on the part of the, the company to be uh, in a situation where they're first to market a presumed innovative drug, uh, but uh, nevertheless pricing what the market would bear rather than taking into consideration what added value, added benefit they were, they were providing for these patients. 
Well, speaking of uh, mistakes, when I look at, I think his name is Martin Sucrelli, the young uh, uh, chief executive of the pharmaceutical company, decided to raise the price of a long generic uh, medication to treat a uh, fairly rare disease. Uh, I think he raised it by about 56 times or 5,600 percent, something like that. Um, just astronomical prices. Now, he's in prison, not necessarily for that, but for other reasons. But I think that captured public attention, those kind of outrages. Sorry. Yeah. Let me ask, uh, let me ask this, uh, Dr. Shines. There are, uh, you mentioned the long, uh, lead times and the amount of research that has to go in in the basic sciences with the new techniques that we're seeing. And we did talk about CRISPR last year, uh, some of the new genetic techniques, is this shortening the process or making it uh, more fail-proof, in other words, being able to discard uh, medicines that aren't going to work much quicker? It should. Uh, If we're able to translate the science um, to a a more selective um, approach to which drugs actually are taken into full development, uh, I think that should reduce costs, should streamline the process. Of course, it's got to be matched by um, perhaps some changes in FDA um, requirements uh, in, in concert with that, uh, so that so that none of this is sort of locked in in stone. That we're prepared to actually look at the way we're doing the process of drug development, discovery, what type of regulatory requirements are necessary. Um, how can we foreshorten the process and therefore reduce time frames and costs? There's a lot of preclinical testing, for example, that I could argue that is very limited value, that takes time, sacrifices animals, but there's a very little value in terms of making judgments about mm-hmm. whether a drug is going to be safe and effective in humans. Uh, the entire process ought to be looked at. But I think there is the opportunity with more targeted treatments, um, Exploiting the advances that have been made in in biology of cancer, other diseases, to uh, to perhaps wring some of the costs out, make the, the science less empirical and much more target driven. Well, it sounds like the technology is advancing much quicker than our uh, regulatory process, which is uh, um, and we're and obviously that's an issue for another time. Okay, can so, I can yes. just balance that again? Sure. You know, one of the long sought after goals is making drugs much more specific you know, for the patient, uh, in essence, personalized medicine. Uh, with that comes some additional costs that perhaps we're not taking into account for. <clears throat> that when you design a drug that's going to be very effective for a specific patient based upon the molecular characteristics of their tumor or other disease, um, you don't get scale. Uh, so therefore, the, the entire cost of development is is the burden to that specific case. So for things like CAR-T therapy uh, for cancer, which looks very promising for many diseases, the cost for individual patient can be in the range of $350,000 to $500,000. It's very effective, but can you possibly scale something like that uh, in order to bring it to all the patients that might otherwise be eligible for this new advancement in treatment? That's an extremely important Question, comment, uh, particularly as we move, try and move toward personalized medicine that the, uh, we haven't really been talking about the, uh, costs of that. Um, we're going to have a caller in a moment. Uh, but Dr. Robinson, I'm going to go back to you. Uh, 
in a minute uh, to um, to s- talk about just in general uh, the pharmaceutical companies and the well let me let me take our caller do we have the caller no we lost the caller sorry all right so dr. Robinson uh, sort of the the feeling that uh, the public has that somehow uh, a lot of these prices are being generated by uh, pharmaceutical companies and their political and financial power, and that it's not really helping patients as much. Um, sort of a, a big battle royale here. What are your thoughts? Well, I think those are two very separate things. I, I'm a, a big, a big supporter of the, the pharmaceutical industry as a source of innovation, and I think a lot of the drugs and vaccines that are generated are truly transformative. Most obviously, and recently. Uh, COVID vaccines, but also the hepatitis C drugs, and there's just a lot of other products out there on the market that really do work and are great. Uh, the Alzheimer's uh, drug was not an not a, an example of that, but that doesn't take away from the other drugs that are very effective, and many of which have become very cheap over time as they have faced generic competition, and we uh, we have the ability to access really effective uh, drugs. That once they've gone generic for a uh, very small, you know, for ten dollars, twenty dollars a month, uh, some drugs that are really great drugs. So um, that's and that's great, and we need to sustain that. And uh, the, the life sciences industry, the drug industry, in some ways, is a is a crown jewel of the American economy. It produces stuff that people really need, really care about, and uh, but unfortunately, may not be able to, to afford. Let me take a yeah. call from our. Uh, let me take our caller. Uh, yes, sure. Rich from Starksboro. Uh, good morning, or afternoon. Sorry, and uh, good morning. Thanks. I've got a question about um, about side effects in, in drugs. Um, it's very rare to find a, a medication that gets prescribed that doesn't have, you know, at least some side effects. And I'm, you know, it probably side effects are beneficial to the business model of the of the whole medical industry. I just wonder if you could comment on this trend that every drug seems to have side effects and if there's anything fishy about it, is there anything done intentionally? I always, as, as a skeptic, I always sense that. Well, Thank Dr. You. Schein, I'll let you try and answer that. Well, there, there's no perfect drug. Every drug, every therapy will have some side effects associated with it. And, of course, um, there are drugs that, are not approved simply because the side effect profile um, created a situation where the the benefit to risk um, suggested that uh, it was too dangerous a drug to put on the market. So uh, they all come. What you hope for is that there are no surprises uh, and that the clinical development program where the drug goes into clinical testing in human subjects is sufficiently large enough and with sufficient follow-up time so that you've actually identified uh, all the important side effects inherent within a specific chemical or biological, and that you've uh, perhaps developed ways of addressing those side effects. But many times um, you have to accept the bad with the good and hope that the balance is sufficient so that uh, there's sufficient justification for both putting the drug on the market and uh, for patients taking it, of course, with the process of full informed consent so that everybody's aware of what the potential side effects might be. And if you've watched these commercials on television, which are now allowed (laughs) against the background of very soft music, uh, you'll hear a panoply 
uh, potential harmful effects of these drugs that can be produced. Um, but they're there. And uh, again, there are very few drugs that are truly safe, meaning no side effects can occur. Rich, thank you for your call. In the in the two and a half minutes that we have left, I want to ask each of you briefly, Dr. Robinson, if you had a magic wand and could change or uh, our present pharmaceutical system to make it from an economic health economic standpoint more logical, what would you do? I would um, allow the Medicare and um, even the private insurers more leeway in their, in negotiating prices with the drug companies, number one. And number two, on the innovation side, I would um, uh, allow the uh, federal government to continue supporting product development and uh, for needed categories of drugs in addition to basic research. And Dr. Shine, if you had the magic wand, uh, based on all the experience you've had over the years and decades, what, how would you change the system? I think there would be a better sharing of costs. I think one of the themes that you brought up early on is the fact that the American taxpayer, the American patient, is bearing the cost of innovation, uh, largely done by U.S.-based international corporations, uh, whereas the Europeans, other companies, are paying a much lower price the same innovative drug, there ought to be a sharing, harmonization of the pricing across so that, uh, so that there isn't as much of a financial burden borne by the American public uh, for these new innovative compounds. And I think that Aduhelm, which we started with at the beginning of the hour, uh, and the controversy surrounding that has brought up a lot of these questions uh, for people as in a, in a more beneficial way has the, uh, the, the rapid uh, brought to market of the COVID vaccines. So I want to thank uh, Dr. Robinson and Dr. Shine for being here with us. I think it's been fascinating to hear their uh, input and perspectives, and there's a lot more work to be done, and hopefully we'll revisit this uh, in the future. So thank you both. Thank you for having us. Uh, and uh, uh, we will be back next week. We're going to be talking with New York Times reporter about a lengthy series he has recently completed on uh, caring for the elderly. Um, I think it was a very wonderful series, and we'll talk with him further. Uh, until then, please stay warm, stay safe, bring your pets in, and uh, be kind to yourselves, and please be kind to others. Thank you. with Dr. Lewis Myers, brought to you in part by Age Well Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee-owned and locally committed. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. NorthfieldPharmacy.com. The music for this program was written and produced by Armin Bayajan.